This is Kick-Ass Politics. I'm Ben Mathis. Hi, folks. This is a rebroadcast of an interview I had with Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, about a month ago in December. I'll have a new episode for you on Thursday, but I think this episode is worth putting up again since National Review magazine just released its big Against Trump edition this week. That's the one in which 22 major conservative thinkers came out against Donald Trump, including Glenn Beck, Bill Kristol, editor of the Weekly Standard, uh, Katie Pavlik, the editor of Town Hall, Dennis Prager, Michael Medved, the list goes on and on and on. And it's hard to make the case that these are all just establishment conservatives against Trump, because they range from leading Tea Party conservatives to leading social conservatives on the religious right, economic conservatives like the president of the Club for Growth, foreign policy hawks. It's a very broad cross-section. And not surprisingly, as soon as the magazine was announced, Trump jumped on Twitter and began attacking every one of them. For instance, he called Glenn Beck a wacko and dumb as a rock, and then he called Brent Bozell a lightweight and a dog. <laughs> Very magnanimous of him. He also said, quote, The late great William F. Buckley would be ashamed of what has happened to his prize, the dying National Review. Um, now, of course, you might remember in the last debate in the exchange with Ted Cruz, Trump extolled the virtues of National Review's founder, William F. Buckley Jr., as a perfect example of a conservative who represented his idea of New York values. But in the past day or so, it's gotten a little more interesting when a quote surfaced from 2000 by William F. Buckley Jr. about Donald Trump, in which he seems to indicate that Buckley didn't exactly return Trump's admiration. Uh, before I read you the quote, just to give you some background here, 2000 was the year that Trump was running not to be the Republican candidate for president, but the Reform Party candidate for president which he, of course, lost. Does that make him, dare I say, a loser? And then, in true Trump fashion, after he got rejected by a party of wingnuts and communists, he proceeded to trash his own party, saying, the Reform Party is a mess. <laughs> and I'm not saying that he's wrong about that, but most of us didn't need to lose a presidential primary to figure that one out. After that, Trump switched back to being a Democrat again, and the Reform Party followed up their brief flirtation with Donald Trump by nominating Ralph Nader in 2004. And now this guy, Donald Trump, this guy's your Republican nominee? Really? Seriously. But I digress. So here's what William F. Buckley Jr., founder of National Review, a conservative's conservative, had to say about Donald Trump. He said, quote, When he looks at a glass... He is mesmerized by its reflection. If Donald Trump were shaped a little differently, he would compete for Miss America. But whatever the depths of self-enchantment, the demagogue has to say something. So what does Trump say? That he is a successful businessman and that that is what America needs in the Oval Office. There is some plausibility in this, though not much. The greatest deeds of American presidents, midwifing the new republic, freeing the slaves, harnessing the energies and vision needed to win the Cold War, had little to do with the bottom line. End quote. That's what William F. Buckley Jr. had to say about Donald Trump. 
Now, I don't know where Donald Trump draws the line or if there even is a line at this point, but let's see if he now turns on the conservative icon he revered just a week ago and tries to start a Twitter battle with a dead man. I wouldn't put it past him. This National Review Against Trump issue has gotten a lot of attention in the past few days. So I thought it would be well worthwhile to rebroadcast my interview with National Review editor Rich Lowry, because probably half of that interview is dedicated to Donald Trump's role in the conservative movement, whether he's a credible conservative, and what Rich Lowry, who was very close with Bill Buckley, thinks Buckley might think of Trump today. I'll have a new episode for you later this week, but in the meantime, I hope you enjoy my interview with Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, coming up in just a moment. From Hollywood to Washington, it's time for Kick-Ass Politics. And now here's your host, Ben Mathis. Today I'm joined by the editor of National Review, Rich Lowry. And folks, I'll just warn you that we're talking via Skype here. And Rich, of course, is in New York City. So you might hear a little bit of that big city sound in the background there. But I think we'll manage. So Rich, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, Rich, you've been blessed with some pretty esteemed mentors throughout your rise in the conservative movement. And before we even get around to Bill Buckley and National Review, you began your career straight out of UVA as a research assistant for conservative columnist and political commentator Charles Krauthammer. Now, maybe it's just my impression, but Dr. Krauthammer strikes me as a man who probably does not suffer fools very well. Um, was he a pretty demanding first boss? He was a terrifying first boss, not because he's not a completely uh, gracious and very thoughtful man, just because I was a, a 21-year-old kid in the presence of this giant every day and thinking, because of the quality you just mentioned, of not suffering fools gladly, that he was thinking I was a fool every hour of the day. But uh, we, we had a great, uh, a great time. I learned a lot being around him, and we have kept in touch since and I always tease him how I, I used to, uh, when I try to impress people, tell them I'm editor of National Review. But now I say I was, I was a former research assistant for Charles Krauthammer, and that's what that's what really gets uh, gets people's <laughs> eyes wider. Well, you're now editor at National Review, and he's contributing editor at the Weekly Standard. Is there any kind of a friendly rivalry there now? No. Well, he he writes some for the Weekly Standard, but. You know, he, he's basically writing his column and, and spending all his time being a, a TV star on, on Fox. And you know, that, that 20 minutes on special report requires a fair amount of uh, preparation. Uh, even Charles doesn't wing it. And then, you know, he's very often on other primetime shows as well. So and, and we generally we um, everyone's a little competitive, uh, you know, not human if you, you don't have a little uh, competitive but jealousy and juices in you, but our National Review's attitude has always been the more and and the better conservative journalism is is what we want. So we, we try to have a, a very uh, a very encouraging attitude towards any journalistic outfit. 
Well, not long after your work with Dr. Krauthammer, you landed at National Review, and within just five years, you were appointed editor of the magazine by William F. Buckley Jr. himself. How did you originally come to National Review? I've always been a National Review guy. I In high school, I discovered Bill Buckley through his long-running program, Firing Line. I was, really? I was very intrigued. You know, I heard a reference to National Review through the program. I, I ran out and tried to find one. And I've really been in love with the magazine ever since. And I tell people that in high school, we filled out a career form at one point and asked, where do you want to be working and in what city 10 years from now? And I said, National Review in New York City. And it's been a great blessing to be able to do it for quite a long time now. Wow. So National Review was kind of a childhood dream fulfilled for you. Uh, What was it that you admired so much about Bill Buckley from such a young age? Well, the incredible wit and charm and the the intellectual seriousness. And you know, among his many great achievements was to take conservative ideas that were held in contempt by the Northeastern elite, much like today, and uh, to, to make them uh, respectable and um, make people have to to pay attention and sit up and listen at least to him, if not to to other conservatives. And there's just just no underestimating the power of charisma in our, our public life. You know, a lot of us on the right mock, you know, how enthralled young people were with with Barack Obama. And I, I've I've engaged in a lot of that mockery myself. But it's just um, that that's really that's a really important quality. And Obama had it or has it. Uh, Ronald Reagan had it, and Bill Buckley in the intellectual realm had it as well. Do you worry at all that the conservative movement, particularly during this election, might be, let's say, uh, undervaluing that intellectual seriousness that William Buckley represented? Well, it, it'll help a lot if Republicans have you know, a, a very um, a, a appealing... Uh, standard bearer yeah. in next year in next year's election, and we're having a big uh, argument and a, a big uh, brawl about that at the moment, which uh, is being won by Donald Trump going away. Yeah, well, <laughs> how's that working out? Well, William F. Buckley Jr. espoused the belief that, in his words, we can disagree without being disagreeable. Do you think that he would lament the peevishness of certain candidates and the general acrid tone of this debate right yeah, now? Yeah, now, now civility mattered a lot to him, and uh, intellectual standards in argument mattered a lot to him. But we, we shouldn't underestimate, especially early in his career, the extent to which he was kind of an Ann Coulter-style bomb thrower. Interesting. So there, there's a, a place for that in, in our our debate and our, our public argument. But I, I think what's what's happened at the moment and that I find most distressing about the presidential race and the, the debate, debate surrounding it is all conservatives have to have an element of anti-establishmentarianism in them. Right. Because basically all institutions in our national life are arrayed against us. So at that level, all of us kind of have to be anti-elitist and populists. Right. But in the Trump phenomenon, and especially his sympathizers on the right, I think you, you see what had traditionally been the relative 
valence of being anti-establishment and being conservative switching. And what I mean by that is, okay, you know, we're going to take down Charlie Crist and fight the establishment to elect a much more conservative senator. You know, okay, we're going to do the same thing in the Texas Senate race that elected Ted Cruz two years later. What a lot of people be, seem to be thinking about Trump is just the fact that he is anti-establishment is enough for them to support him, that that in itself is more important than whether he's actually a conservative himself or advancing conservative policy goals. And that, I think, is very worrisome. Right. And it's like we're in some parallel universe where the traditional qualifiers of what makes someone a conservative and what's considered to be distinguished in presidential behavior no longer seem to matter. (laughs) I mean, this is a guy who called Ronald Reagan a con man, who said just 10 years ago that he identified more as a Democrat and that the economy does better under Democrats than Republicans. Today he uses the liberal rhetoric of class warfare when he proposes singling out hedge fund CEOs for a tax hike. If any other Republican candidate talked like that, he'd be driven out of the party in a heartbeat. And just look at how much grief Chris Christie got for hugging President Obama during a natural disaster in New Jersey. And yet, here's a guy who donated money to the Democrat frontrunner Hillary Clinton, and no one seems to care. I mean, you tell me, Rich, do the facts just no longer matter? Yeah, absolutely. Just look at one statement Trump made in the first debate which is that single-payer health care works really well in, in Scotland and in Canada. If anyone else had said that, that really, they, they drop to an asterisk immediately. And the, the rules don't apply to Trump, and that's kind of a horrible cliche because we've heard it so many times in the last six months or so. But it's really true, and it's in part because he has a, a different kind of appeal. It's not really an, an ideological appeal. It's an appeal to a certain aspect of the American character and the American temper, which is Jacksonianism in in this country, which is fiercely nationalistic. It's very anti-elitist, can be a little conspiratorial and worrying that corrupt elites are are selling out our interest and um, selling out to foreigners overseas. It's not really interested in foreign engagements unless our blood is up and then we're going to bomb the S out of people um, and not worry about the consequences. And th- this is what Trump Trump is. He's kind of a, a reality star, celebrity version of uh, a, a figure like Andrew Jackson. And that's why I think his appeal has been so in- enduring and has actually increased in these moments of crisis and when national security and foreign policy have become more prominent. Although a lot of you know intelligent analysts after Paris said, oh, well, Trump and Carson are going to fade because they don't have experience. Well, people aren't necessarily looking for experience. They're looking for strength. And that's why um, that's just just a huge element of Trump's appeal. Yeah, and you had a great article this week just on that, uh, this idea of Trump as a Jacksonian. Although, as I recall, Andrew Jackson had a substantial list of accomplishments when he ran for president. I mean, I, I believe he had been in Congress. He'd been in the Senate. He was the hero of the Battle of New Orleans, had won the War of 1812, basically gained Florida for the United States. Andrew Jackson wasn't a guy who was just fudging his resume and completely full of hot air. You know, but the other thing is, you know, all of this begs the question, if Trump feels that, as he says, he's treated unfairly, do you think that he might challenge someone to a duel? 
<laughs> or is Twitter sniping as brave as Donald Trump gets? Twitter is the modern equivalent of the, the duel. But you sort of see it in the, um, which isn't quite true, but there's some truth of it, where he says that I'm a counterpuncher. So there's like an element of honor uh, to it with him, that if, if you cross him and you attack him, he, he has to, you know, just sort of prove his, his, uh, his worthiness and his manhood. He has to come back at you twice as hard. And it doesn't matter whether what he says about you is accurate or makes any sense right. as and long goes, as he's hitting you. It goes against all the rules of political strategy because he goes around hitting back at everyone, you know, people that he doesn't even need to hit back at. I mean, random reporters that no one's ever heard of, Rosie O'Donnell, the magician's pen and teller, Right. Isn't the rule supposed to be that you never go on the attack when you're already winning? I mean, Uh, why? What what is there possibly to be gained? Yeah, and the the usual rule among journalists and political candidates is you only punch up because you're wasting your time and diminishing yourself by punching down. But there's basically, at this point, I'm not sure there's any conservative journalist that he hasn't called a a fool and an incompetent and a a loser. Yeah, including yourself, Rich, which, if you ask me, is kind of a badge of honor. Thank you. Well, because it's, it's one, he's just so uh, sensitive to criticism, and two, it's just this reflex he has. And you just look at the, the candidates he's attacked. You know, there's no upside in him a couple of debates ago just storming out of the gates and insulting Rand Paul on the debate stage <laughs> for no reason. Yeah. And he kind of, you know, Kasich came after him first uh, 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 another couple of debates ago. But still, there's no reason for Trump to drop a thermonuclear bomb in his head. There's nothing strategic <laughs> about it. It's just a reflex. Right. And usually when a candidate lowers himself to that level, the media and the public denounce it as unpresidential behavior. But Trump just gets a pass every single time. Yeah, again, it just, it, as long as he seems strong. Hmm. And, you know, there is this mystifying moment. Um, well, it wasn't so long ago. It was, it was just earlier this week. It was still going, although it's easy to forget now, where we were obsessed over his remarks about thousands of, of Muslims supposedly celebrating in New Jersey after September, on the day of September 11th, after the towers went down. Right. And for his supporters, it doesn't really matter whether it's exactly true or whether he kind of backfills and dodges, which he, he often does, as long as he seems strong during the course of all of it. And that, that is his, his main allure as a communicator. It's, he can say something that makes zero sense, that as a policy matter, might be weaker than what the other candidates are advocating, but because of the way he says it, it it sounds more serious right. and and stronger. And and this is I think goes to one of the problems Bush has has had. You know, that there's something about the way he carries himself. There's this ad that plays on Fox constantly from his super PAC where he says, you know, this isn't just about yapping, <laughs> and and he's kind of he's sort of stooping uh, as he, as he stands there, and he, <laughs> when he. Um, says things, he, ne- he doesn't really, uh, there, there's never like a, uh, a, a whip at, at, the, uh, at the end of it or a dagger at the end of it. It, it just never really kind of hits home. So just as a performer and a communicator, I think he's had a very hard time on top of the, the other forces right. holding him back. And it makes me wonder if after eight years of a president who backs down and surrenders to our enemies abroad and never seems to stand up for anything, if perhaps now the pendulum has swung 
to the opposite extreme, and the Trump voter block just wants someone who stands by what he says, no matter what, no matter the substance of it or the merits of what he's saying, even if he's completely wrong, just literally never, ever backs down, ever. Yeah, that's, I think that's a, big, that's a big part of it. And it's interesting because after eight years of, of Bill Clinton, that wasn't really the reaction on the right, which was open to George W. Bush, whose, whose message was compassionate conservatism, which was a kind of accommodation with uh, big government at a certain level and, uh, at least tonally, a feint towards the center. And we see none of that this time around after eight years of Obama. And I, I think the two big differences are Bill Clinton accommodated Republicans after he lost in, in 1994 and famously triangulated when Obama has done the opposite when faced with the Republican Congress has, has even gone further left and um, become more confrontational and you know done many uh, things unilaterally. And two, there's a perception back in 2000 that the Republican Congress had overreached and uh, that was the reason for its lack of success, whereas this time there's a sense that Congress has underreached and has, has broken promises that were made prior to the 2014 congressional elections. And all that feeds the, the, the desire for strength, the desire for an outsider, the desire for someone who every day, in, in effect, is giving a big middle finger to the political establishment. Okay, so you believe that the Trump phenomenon is more of a revolt against the weakness of Republicans in Congress than the weakness of the president? Oh, it's both. It, it's both. But but I, I would the the where I would edit slightly the weakness of Obama. Yeah, the, it's a reaction to his weakness of, abroad, but it's also a reaction to his um, continued aggressiveness at home, pushing his agenda, you know, in a lawless manner and through ex executive um, actions. So and, and, you know, just trampling on Congress, basically, and it's very hard for Congress to restrain a lawless pr president, but Congress has really done nothing uh, very notable to even right. try. So that just, right. it all feeds this kind of anger and frustration and sense of, uh, uh, distress over the direction of our country, all of which are impulses I feel myself. I just don't think they're usefully cha channeled into Donald Trump. Well, in an op-ed you wrote last week, you said that you see the GOP primary boiling down to a race between Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz. They're roughly tied for third place right now. So tell me, how do you see this scenario playing out? Well, it, was, uh, it wasn't meant to be um, strictly predictive. It was a little hypothetical, but you can see certainly that these two have um, emerged and kind of risen above uh, the rest of the field except for Trump. And that's obviously a heck of an exception because we have a CNN poll that has Trump leading by 20 points nationally. But these, these are two guys who were very talented, you know, 40-year-old uh, Hispanic uh, politicians who really represent the next generation of, of the party. And it's, it's very, whereas you have to uh, perhaps um, apply some analytical gymnastics to understand the appeal of a Donald Trump right. or a Ben Carson, you don't right. have to do that with Ted Cruz or, or Marco Rubio. These guys are just good. And it, if it ends up somehow winning down 
to them, it should be a choice that conservatives should be delighted by. Because if Marco Rubio is the establishment guy, well, he, he is in the Senate just because he killed a rhino uh, mm-hmm. by, the, by the name of Charlie Crist. And Ted Cruz emulated his campaign in Texas two years later. And, you know, there are relative advantages and disadvantages to both of them, but they would be thoroughly respectable uh, choices for, for conservatives to uh, decide between. Yeah. Isn't it funny how Rubio is somehow considered the establishment candidate, despite the fact that he rode in on the Tea Party wave, and he's the guy who challenged the establishment candidate, Charlie Crist, in Florida, who was basically being anointed by the RNC, their hand-picked candidate. And the flip side of that is with Ted Cruz, so many people keep saying Cruz is too controversial, he's too much of a conservative bomb thrower, and he's unelectable in a general election. But I don't see much difference policy-wise between him and the other candidates, including Rubio. So, Rich, do both of these candidates, Cruz and Rubio, have a bit of a perception problem to deal with? Yeah, I think both of those points are are correct. It's just Rubio, obviously, his major initiative in the Senate was this comprehensive immigration reform that turned out to be, from my perspective, an enormous substantive and political mistake, and he's still not entirely recovered from it. Whereas Cruz, as soon as he got in the Senate, his play is, I am never going to let there be an inch of daylight between me and the grassroots, and I'm putting my stake down in a, a tactical maximalism. So whereas on strict policy positions, there's not a lot of difference between him and Marco Rubio. Now, Ru- now that Rubio's come off the comprehensive immigration reform, Cruz and Rubio's positions on immigration, at least kind of in the broadest gauge, are somewhat similar. They're both hardliners on foreign policy. Rubio a little more interventionist. Um, Cruz at, at times has, has been a little bit more of a civil a civil libertarian on something like the NSA, and their tax plans are, are different. But there's no doubt that they're both conservatives. And when people talk about Cruz being too far to the right, it has mostly to do with, with style and affect and tactics. And if Cruz wins the nomination, a challenge of, of his is going to be how does he soften that image. And what he says now is that it doesn't need to be softened. All he has to do is turn out more conservatives. I'm not sure that if he's a nominee, that is really, at the end of the day, going to be his electoral uh, strategy. And and people kind of loosely talk about, oh, it would be a, a Barry Goldwater-style blowout if Cruz won the nomination. I think the country is too evenly divided for a Goldwater-style blowout uh, anymore. And two, Ted Cruz is too shrewd to step into a Goldwater-type blowout. So I think he'd be, you know, it's going to be, a, I think you, you favor slightly Hillary over any Republican, maybe a little more against um, Ted Cruz. But I, I think it's it's foolish to just dismiss it and say, oh, it'll be a, a, a landslide against Republicans. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And then when I come back, Rich Lowry and I will talk about the recent attacks in Paris and San Bernardino and some of the best advice he received from William F. Buckley Jr. We'll be back in just a moment. Christmas is coming, and before you do your holiday shopping, visit our site at kickasspolitics.com and click on the Amazon link on our sponsor page. 
for the best prices on everything from books and electronics to jewelry and clothing, all delivered conveniently straight to your door. No crowded stores, no mall parking, no getting there only to find that they don't have what you're looking for. Amazon is the best place to do your holiday shopping with minimal hassle, maximum value, and an unlimited selection. And if you go to Amazon through the link on our website at kickasspolitics.com, Amazon will actually donate a portion of your holiday purchases to help support the podcast. It won't cost you anything extra. Just do your holiday shopping, same as you would anyway, and your purchase will help keep us chugging along here at Kickass Politics. But only if you go to Amazon through that link on our website first. That's the only way they'll know that I sent you. So go do your shopping and help us out here. Thanks for the support, folks, and Merry Christmas. Now, back to the show. We're back, and I'm talking with Rich Lowry, editor of National Review Magazine. Rich, one of my favorite articles in recent memory was one that you wrote just a couple of weeks ago for the New York Times in the days following the Paris attacks. It was titled, Paris Doesn't Need Your Hashtag Heroics. I was happy to read that I was not alone because I found myself getting rather annoyed at all of these meaningless statements of solidarity and these cheesy memes that started popping up on my social media almost immediately after the attacks. Talk about what it was about this social media solidarity that infuriated you. Well, it's, it's, I admit it's kind of a churlish point on, on my part, but it's just, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't do anything to create a peace symbol in, uh, with the Eiffel Tower yeah. in it and tweet it around and to make your Facebook profile uh, a tricolor uh, homage to the, the French flag. I mean, it's all fine. There's nothing really wrong with it, but just the, the this kind of sloganeering doesn't doesn't accomplish anything and in some respects it at least in its basic sentiment runs counter to what we need to happen you know paris doesn't need peace per se it needs a lot of terror raids which have been yeah. going on in, in subsequent weeks it needs yeah. to bomb uh isis in syria which has been happening so it's not the the, the kind of uh, maudlin and, and treacly calls to to unity they, they, they just kind of annoy me. And it's not anything, you know, worse or more significant uh, than that. But uh, I, I, I just had to get that one off my chest. But it's almost as if a lot of people think that a Facebook post or changing the filter on their profile pic is the equivalent or, or takes the place of actually doing something. And it's funny because now I look back just 15 years ago to the hours and the days immediately after 9-11, and people were actually getting off their asses and doing something. Yeah. They were volunteering. They were donating blood, bringing coffee and sandwiches to the firefighters. You know, I mean, within 24 hours, I think they had already organized a huge national telethon to raise money for the families of the victims. But after the Paris attacks, and now granted, it's on the other side of the Atlantic, but I didn't see any of that in the wake of the Paris attacks. It seems to me that somehow copying and pasting some shallow expression of pseudo-empathy now takes the place of making an actual sacrifice or taking any yeah, kind of and, meaningful action. And it's it's particularly annoying when it's self-congratulatory, as that hashtag I am Charlie was. And again, I, I appreciate the the uh, 
uh, the fellow feeling for the victims of this horrible atrocity, but none of us are Charlie. We are not that brave. None of us are drawing Mohammed and putting them, uh, putting the drawings on our website, or we'd be in hiding right now. And <laughs> yeah. and also just the sense that you're really doing something. Like when the first lady does the bring back our girls hashtag, mm-hmm. <laughs> that that's an excuse for doing nothing. You know, when you're the first lady of the United States in particular, you have like a lot of influence. You have a lot of clout. You have a lot of say. And if that's all you can do, maybe it's better <laughs> not to do it at all. Yeah, and it strikes me as almost a little morbid because it seems like people are eager to attach themselves to someone else's tragedy. I don't know if it's a plea for sympathy by osmosis or just to say, look how deep and spiritual and empathetic I am. Um, but if I were a Parisian who had been hurt or lost someone, I would almost feel insulted by all of these random strangers on the other side of the world acting as if they had somehow personally been affected by my tragedy, when in truth these people have neither risked nor suffered anything. Right, yeah, and uh, it, it's, it's, it, you know, it's part of the, the temptation of social media, which has obviously enormous upsides, but also it's, it's incredibly annoying um, uh, aspects as well. And we saw it in the, the latest uh, attack in San Bernardino, where we had this, uh, you know, argument over the, the expression of thoughts and prayer, you know, sympathy for the, the, the victims. And I, I think part of the reason we had that argument was that there was nothing to argue about for the first 12 hours because we didn't have any facts, you know, but <laughs> yeah. the right and the left wanted to line up and clash about something. So it was over that, even though President Obama uh, in one of his initial statements, I guess the day after, of course, said my thoughts and prayers are with the victims because that's just a, a normal human expression of sympathy. Well, yeah, let's talk about San Bernardino. For several years, every time there's a tragedy like this, Barack Obama has been just itching to enact new gun control laws. He's got a year left in the White House. Do you think that this moment is going to be, for lack of a better term, Rich, uh, his last shot at expanding gun control? Well, it's never going to pass Congress. So the, the question is whether he'll he'll do it unilaterally. And the, the answer in almost every other important question has been, yes, he will do it unilaterally. So he'll probably, uh, before he's out of office, try to do something about the so-called gun show loophole, which is basically a misnomer because if you're a federally licensed dealer, whether you're selling in your own shop or you're selling at a gun show, you have to do the the same kind of background check. And one of the bizarre things about the the gun control debate is, one, obviously gun control is a means of fighting terrorism. It's utterly fatuous. It's just ridiculous. It's on the level of, you know, we're going to fight climate change in order to undermine ISIS. (laughs) But even the specific proposals they, they, and even when it's it's uh, a, a case where it's you know a, a lone deranged person on a rampage with a, with a lot of guns and ammunition, the, the specific proposals almost never interact with what happened. Yeah, you know none of these cases is actually someone who went to a, a gun show and bought a gun they wouldn't otherwise have access to. Um, because there was a, a private dealer there who didn't have to do a, a background check. It just doesn't happen. And this debate now, uh, which I think, you know, is a pretty good talking point for Democrats over 
the no-fly list and whether you're on it, whether you'll be able to buy guns or not. It's just the, these killers in San Bernardino, they weren't on the no-fly list. Yeah. So it's just a, a, a really a, a push to just have some symbolic uh, gun control measure, whether it's relevant or not, when the bottom line is, um, in a free society, and especially a society with the Second Amendment, you're never going to stop people who haven't been convicted of a crime or adjudicated for some serious mental issue from buying a gun. So they could pass all the stuff they're, they're talking about, about gun shows and no-fly lists and you know limits on um, magazines, and those two uh, monsters in San Bernardino still would have been able to do exactly what they what they did. And of course, by the way, it's already illegal to build pipe bombs, and that didn't stop them from building a lot of them. Yeah. Well, on a whole other subject, you wrote a great book a couple of years ago called Lincoln Unbound, how an ambitious young rail splitter saved the American dream and how we can do it again. What was it, Rich, that you found so inspiring about Lincoln's personal story? Well, I think what about uh, the aspect of Lincoln that really crosses party lines and, and kind of stirs all of us, and you're kind of not American if it doesn't stir you, is that there's you know, this, this kid born in obscurity in the middle of nowhere with very little formal education through pluck and determination and discipline and talent made the most of himself, one— and two, because of you know the uh, historical, extraordinary historical circumstances, really saved the country and saved the American dream. And I I think the the key to Lincoln that tends to get obscured a little bit, even though it's the single most important thing in my mind about him and runs throughout his entire uh, adult career, is making this a country where it's possible for people to rise and make the most of themselves. And that is what, uh, what I think a lot of people fear we're losing now and the kind of a semi-crisis of the American dream. And I, I think it's, it has much less to do with income inequality that the left obsesses on um, and more to do with kind of the interaction of economic and, and cultural trends where people don't certain basic habits you need to have a, a chance to succeed uh, in, in this country. And, and Lincoln loved those habits. He, he evangelized for them and uh, exemplified them himself in his life. And they're not really complicated. They don't involve any Bible thumping. It's just basic self-discipline, self-improvement, hard work. And all of which were espoused by your mentor, Bill Buckley. So let's talk about him. You're only the third editor that National Review has had in its 60 years as a magazine. When William F. Buckley appointed you as the editor in 1997 at the age of 29, did he give you any good advice? You know, the funny thing about Bill is he he didn't like being explicit about anything. And <laughs> he could be very annoyed by something and think you were doing it completely wrong. And he would suggest it as obliquely as possible and just just assume that you would get it. And if you didn't get it, eventually there might be an explosion and a memo would land on your desk that would destroy you, you know, for, for a week. Yeah. But once once he got it off his chest and was sure you got the message, then it would be all, um, you know, be all 
forgotten. So he, he wasn't really one to, to sit down and, and give people explicit advice like that. He, he just uh, uh, assumed that you would be um, acute enough to uh, absorb what he considered important and, and, and how he thought that the magazine should, uh, should be conducted and how, how it should argue. And the, the main thing is just that he, he wanted to engage the other side on the merits. And, you know, he liked wit, he liked tough rhetoric, no problem with that at all, but you had to be making the case based on logic and on evidence. And if you weren't doing that, uh, he had this, a, a word for it, he called it attitudinizing, which is <laughs> just sort of opinion uh, untethered to logic or to evidence. And he truly hated that. And whenever he saw what he considered examples of it in the magazine, he, he pointed them uh, out and ur urged us to purge them forthwith. Well, do you think William F. Buckley Jr. would be pleased with where the conservative movement is today? Well, I think the Tea Party would be, would be the fulfillment of uh, kind of a, a dream for him, a, a grassroots movement committed to limited government and constitutionalism. When he, near the end of his life, you know, it was the end of the Bush years, it wasn't a great time for the Republican Party or for the conservative movement. And he spoke of how conservatism need to, needed to be rebaptized and its first principles. And the Tea Party basically did that. Now, there, there's, uh, circling back around to Trump, there's part of the Tea Party that uh, maybe is, is wandering away from those principles. And it, it's very uh, perilous to ever say with any certainty what Bill would think of any particular thing, because his mind was so idiosyncratic and he could be so unpredictable. So there are probably some things that he would like about Trump that would uh, uh, surprise or dismay me. But uh, I, I imagine he, he, he would be uh, opposed to what he would consider a kind of a thoughtless uh, populism that is is not connected at, at all to the broader goal of limiting government, and that's one of the another amazing thing. Just you know, we, we talked about how um, Trump earlier on how how Trump uh, is not hurt by by uh, uh, certain things that would sink other candidates. It's just amazing they have a front runner in the Republican presidential race. It doesn't talk about limiting government. He doesn't talk about liberty. He doesn't talk about the, the Constitution. Just none of those things are really important to him. Yeah. Well, he just talks about uh, being angry and making America great again, somehow. <laughs> well, before we go, let me ask you about the magazine. So many magazines are switching over to entirely digital and foregoing the traditional paper magazine. Do you think that there may come a day during your stewardship, when National Review no longer puts out a physical print magazine? Quite possibly. I, I, I hope it is a, a very long time from now. And knock on wood, we have uh, you know, experienced kind of the, the downward pressure on circulation that everyone else has, but it's, it's held up pretty well. And I, I still think there, there's an advantage to actually holding a print publication uh, in in your hand as an expression of of what the you know the the best content that a group of you know very talented editors think uh, can be fit into 64 
pages and represent a diversity of interest, whether it's, you know, the, the latest horse race analysis or a, a book review of a biography of, of C.S. Lewis. And, you know, this can happen online as well, but I think it, it happens more on in print where you can turn a page and not be looking for anything in particular and be surprised by something and be drawn in by something that you wouldn't otherwise have thought you were interested in. This is the 60th anniversary of National Review, as I mentioned. Do you have any big plans or goals for the magazine going forward? So it's a goal to get to 70. That's probably uh, our, our most fundamental uh, goal. Uh, it's, it's a long, long time one way or the other. So we just want to keep holding up the flag and the, the Buckley uh, spirit and represent a, uh, you know, a lively and funny and intellectually serious uh, conservatism, and we just believe there there is always going to be a, a market for that so long as there's uh, an America as we know it. Well, Rich, I hope that National Review stays around for another 60 years. You guys do great work over there. Rich Lowry, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks again to National Review editor Rich Lowry for coming on the show. You can subscribe to National Review by going to nationalreview.com. And you can also go on Amazon to order his books Lincoln Unbound, How an Ambitious Young Rail Splitter Saved the American Dream and How We Can Do It Again, and his previous book, Legacy, Paying the Price for the Clinton Years. I'll include an Amazon link in the show notes and on our website at kickasspolitics.com. And once again, if you're a first-time listener and you enjoyed this preview episode, then please subscribe to our main podcast at Kick-Ass Politics, or you can click on the link in the show notes for this episode. I've got some great guests coming up in the next week or two, and the only way to get those new episodes is to go to iTunes and subscribe to the main show at Kick-Ass Politics. And help us reach our end-of-the-year fundraising goal by donating to our GoFundMe campaign at GoFundMe.com backslash kickass politics. It's really important that we fully fund our production expenses for the next year so I can put my energies toward great new guests, interesting topics, and producing more new episodes. Whatever you can give is going to help us get there, so just go to gofundme.com backslash kickass politics, and I will forever be in your debt, sir. Follow us on Twitter at at kapolitics or visit kickass politics on Facebook. And as always, I welcome your comments and suggestions at comments at kickasspolitics.com. But for now, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass Politics. This podcast may not be reproduced without express written permission. Kick-Ass Politics is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.